Hey, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got some Bibles for you, and uh, they, uh, our ushers would love to get one into your hands. You definitely want to have a Bible in your hand. Um, and uh, Romans 16. We're actually going to be today finishing up the book of Romans. That's a pretty tremendous thing, uh, especially, you know, for me, it's one of the things I really just love about who we are as a church uh, and, and our, our church family is to be able to travel through books of the Bible together. We just start at the beginning and go all the way through. And as we, uh, as we do that, as we travel through, uh, God's so faithful to meet with us. God is so faithful to speak to us in those moments so that we, we just hear from him in his word. Uh, and it's things that maybe I would naturally avoid or just kind of not really think to, you know, like right now, Romans 16. This isn't one of those go-to chapters. Hey, you know what I want to preach on? Romans 16. You know why? It's full of names. That's, you're about, we're about to read a bunch of names, and you're like, man, this is one of those chapters you probably have never heard preached outside of a church similar to ours that goes through the Bible. And that's partially why, is because we want to hear what God has to say and why he's put all these things in his word. So I'm excited to be able to jump into Romans 16 with you and finish up our series in Romans. Uh, so Romans 16 is where we're going to be. You can open your Bible there or your smartphone or tablet. You can open that to the YouVersion Bible app and find the events and follow along there as well. Did you know that people can be difficult? <laughs> really? Yeah, you're probably laughing because Thanksgiving was a couple days ago. And you're like, yeah, people can be difficult. Or maybe you've had a recent experience, you know, with some people. There's actually a bad joke that some, some pastors tell one another. They say, hey, man, the ministry would be great if it weren't for all the people. And uh, every time I hear that, I kind of cringe, like, why would you say that, you know? But it's just very true in some people's mentalities. They just, they want to do all the things, they just don't want to deal with people. And that just, to me, is mind-boggling because ministry is about people. Church is the people. It's not the building. I mean, this is a, we're so thankful to be able to meet in this building. We're so grateful to be able to use this for the glory of God. But quite honestly, any building can be used for any purpose and it doesn't necessarily make it a church or not a church. It's the presence of God and the presence of God's people that makes a church. Uh, we could meet in, outside in a park. We could meet in living rooms. We could meet in, in any place uh, that, that we would uh, gather together, and it's the gathering of people that causes the church to be. The, the ministry wouldn't exist without people. Rituals, routines, and all those kinds of things, that's not what God's looking for. God is looking for relationship. That's what he wants, is genuine relationship. And in Isaiah chapter 1, it says this in verses 11 and 12, what makes you think I want your sacrifices? This is God speaking to his people. What makes you think I want your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with your ceremony? This is kind of weird because... God's the one that asked for this, right? God's the one that set up the sacrificial system. God is the one who said, I want you to offer sacrifices this way. And yet God is saying, I don't want this from you. The thing that had happened to the people was that they had become so religiously minded that they were literally going through the motions with their hearts completely detached from what they were doing. We can do that all the time. We can come in and out here, of here on Sunday mornings and never really leave changed or challenged or transformed by the word of God. We can even, just like we did, we can sing songs and completely disconnect ourselves from the meaning of the words. Just sing the melodies because it sounds nice. Just repeat them because I've heard them before. And our hearts can become easily disconnected from the thing that we're doing. And what that does is it puts us in a position where we do religious stuff, but we disconnect it from the relationship. And when we do that, what we're essentially telling God is, hey God, I'd like your stuff, I just don't want anything to do with you. And that's just, that, that it sounds bad, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to say that. We end up saying that inadvertently to the Lord. You see, when we go through the religious motions, we do so, we tend toward that because that's easier than genuine relationship, isn't it? 
It's just a lot easier to go through the religious motions. It's easier to go, you know what, check, I went to church, you know, once or twice, and I, you know, uh, I even gave some money to somebody once, and uh, somebody called me, they needed help, and I went and helped them, and I've done some good stuff, so I'm good. And we just kind of disconnect ourselves, and we go through some religious motions or try to be a nice person, and, and that's, we do that because it's easier than genuine relationship is. Relationships are hard. But here's the truth. God is all about relationships. Relationship with him and our relationship to one another. So here's our big idea as we look at chapter 16 of the book of Romans. It's this. When your relationship with God is right, your relationships with people are right. The only right way for you to have good relationships with other people is if you have a good relationship with God. And if you've got relationships in your life with people, if you've got some, some people that, you know, when I said, hey, you know, uh, people, people can be difficult, and you're laughing, and you're like, you're laughing not because you think it's funny, but because it's this sort of nervous laugh, like, yeah, there's that one person that I just, you know, there's that person in your mind, or maybe I'm talking about that idea right now, and there's somebody in your mind. If you have an issue with a relationship with that person, it's most likely connected to your relationship with God. It has more to do with your relationship with God than it has to do with that other person. And so if our relationship with God is correct, then everything else falls into place. So we're going to look at Romans 16 in three parts today, and we're going to look at it piece by piece because we're going to take the whole chapter. Uh, and so instead of reading through all of it, we're just going to read through the sections as we go. Uh, the first part is this, verses 1 through 16, family in Christ. The second part, 17 through 20, enemies of Christ. And then 20 through, uh, excuse me, 21 through 27, servants to Christ. Now, Romans 16 is the sixth and final division, uh, and this entire chapter is all about people. There are 37 people directly referenced in this chapter. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. Um, and some of those even represent entire family groups. Uh, that that it's, it's not just that person, it's their family. Uh, and so there's a lot of people being referenced here. You see, the, the truth is that the rich and deep theology of the book of Romans it's, it's for people. That's what it's for. We, we tend to think of it sort of like it's for theologians. It's for those smart guys who write books about things. It's for the pastor to study, and he just sits in his office and nerds out on these words and stuff, and they read theology stuff. But no, at the end here, Paul is talking to people. Why? Because he wrote a letter to people. And so theology is, is for the purpose of building people in Christ. And the whole point of building people in Christ is relationship. Everything in life has value or it's made better because of relationships. Think about it. You know, whenever you see a sunset, you ever seen a sunset on your own? You're like, oh, I wish so-and-so was here with me. Or you go to the beach and you're like, man, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I want to go and enjoy this with somebody else. Or you get in a snowball fight or you go to Disney World or something. And then, yeah, whatever it is, you want to experience that with somebody else. I mean, if I think about me going to, to a Disney theme park, right, by myself, that's weird, right? If you saw, you see a 40-year-old guy wandering, I just want to take pictures with Mickey, you know? Like, bro, there's a screw loose. You should probably have some kids with you, you know? Um, even if it's like nephews and nieces or something, like go get some of those and bring them along because everything's better with relationships. And so that's what we're going to be looking at together in Romans 16. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into our section together today. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the chance to study it together. We thank you for the fact that you love people. God, thank you that you loved us. Thank you that your love is, isn't just this fleeting emotion, but it drives you to action and that you pursue us. That, that even though we aren't worthy of your love, we aren't worthy of your presence, you bring it to us, you chase us down, and you show us how great you are. And so God, today as we look upon your word, we pray that we would be in awe of you. We pray that you would help us to understand you better. We pray that you would help us to understand relationship with you better, and that you would help us to also engage in relationship with one another in a way that honors you, that glorifies you, and brings light to this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this first section we're going to look at together today is family in Christ, verses 1 through 16. So the, the first, here, here, uh, first part we're going to look at is verses 1 and 2 of Romans 16. It says this, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and myself 
also. So the first person in this list of these 37 people is this woman, Phoebe. Uh, She is most likely the one who actually is delivering the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. So she was there with Paul. Paul gave her the letter and said, hey, I need you to go to Rome and deliver this to the church there. So she's traveled uh, and she's delivered this. And this is a remarkable woman. We're given three huge details about who she is and what kind of a woman she is here in these uh, couple of verses. The first thing we see in verse 16 is this, Phoebe, our sister, uh, this, this word sister kind of kicks off a lot of familial language within the book, excuse me, the, this 16th chapter. The, the chapter 16 is very, has a lot of family language in it as we, as we look at it. There's a uh, sister, uh, well, there's one woman in here that, mother, uh, that uh, Paul says, your mother and mine, that doesn't mean like my mom, it just means she's like a mom. Uh, to me. It doesn't mean that they're brothers. It means that I, I love her, your, your mom as though she was my own and she treats me like a son. Uh, and it's just this tremendous relationship. You know, the, the, the thing with this is that Jesus does more than just pay for your sin on the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross and he bleeds and he dies and he goes, he's buried in the tomb, he raises three days later and we put our faith in that truth, that pays for your sin. That, that makes your relationship with God correct. It, it, it puts you out of someone who is the enemy of God and puts you into the camp of someone who is the friend of God. That's a miraculous transition that takes place and God literally transforms you in an instant. Makes you totally new. The Bible calls that being born again. But Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his sacrifice is more than that. It does more than just purchase you a ticket into heaven. This is a good thing. Because if all you had to look forward to was then and there, and nothing happened here and now, then you would have nothing to look forward to in life. You would just be like, well, I guess I just sort of exist through life and wait till I die. And there are people who live that way, but that is a mediocre, terrible way to live. Living, just existing, just going through the motions, just, just kind of being there and taking up space is not what God has made you for. He's gifted you. He's placed you. He has put his love upon you. He has called you. He has equipped you. And he has something for your life to be about. And that thing that he has for your life to be about, it's directly connected to the family of God. He didn't just save you for then. He also put you in a family. Jesus uh, is, is the, our, our older brother. God the Father is our father. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ together with one another. And so there's this thing that takes place that you're adopted into a family. That, that, that's why, I don't know if you've experienced this, if you've ever traveled and gone to different places, uh, if you ever experienced going and being a part of a church in a different place, there's this instant bond and connection between believers that is unbelievable. Uh, wherever I've gone, even, even if I can't speak the language of the people, there's this thing that takes place among other believers where we just have this connection. I, I don't even know how to speak to them in their language. I've got to talk through a translator, but, but I am closer to them than even some of my own blood relatives. Why? Because of Jesus, because he puts me into a family. You see, we tend to think of the church as a lot of things other than a family, we tend to think of it as a building. I'm going to go to church, and it's that building over there, right? Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but culturally, it's just the phrasing that we use. We tend to think of it as a special, holy place. If I can just go to the church, and I can pray there, then God will hear me. God hears you anywhere. Uh, you don't need to be in a special building. Or maybe a church is an organization. It's a, that group of people that do this thing. Or maybe it's tied to a certain religious leader, and that's what we think of church. But The truth is, the way God thinks of church is as a family. Notice, secondly, not only is she she called the sister, our sister, but also who is a servant of the church in Centria. Centria is uh, sort of a a nearby city of uh, Corinth, 1 Corinthians, the city of Corinth. It's like a port city of Corinth. So she serves there near Corinth as a, uh, a servant. Now this word servant, it's actually the feminine form of the same word that's used in Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, the word deacon, where we get the, the title deacon or the office of a deacon. It's the very same word. Now the Bible uses this word also in talking about just Christian service. That, that as Christians, if your faith has been placed in Jesus, then you're called to serve. 
That's just part of who you are. It's like as my kids get older and they, they, they you know, I've got a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, um, a 13-year-old, and an 11-year-old, and they're all girls, so you can pray for me. Um, but they, <laughs> I live in an estrogen ocean, um, but they are, uh, they have responsibilities, right? They don't just sit on the couch and say, mom, I'm hungry, bring me that food. Come on. She says, no, you're old enough, get in that kitchen and you make me some food now that they're older. Uh, and so the, the tables have turned, you know. Uh, they are old enough to contribute. They vacuum, they clean bathrooms, they do dishes, they do all sorts of things. Why? Because they do stuff for the family. So too it is in Christ. There's a need for all Christians to serve. And yet there's also an office of a servant. Like, Jer like Jerry, it's one of the words that he uses when he gives the announcements. He'll say, I'm one of the servants here. It's the same word, deacon. And he's one of our deacons here at the church, serving in that capacity to shoulder the weight and responsibility more in the official kind of a way. And that's what this word is for Phoebe. And so it's giving us light to the idea that women are, uh, this office of deacon is open to women. You see, God has given Redemption Calvary many Phoebes in the faith. Women who put their hand to the work in an above average way. There's one sense in which we all serve, but there are other, other ways in which some women, they really shoulder the work in an above average way. We have, you know, Barb who runs a lot of our admin stuff and oversees so many things and Nicole who runs our kids ministry. And uh, we have Denise who is just always there to, to lend a hand with all sorts of things all over the place and Galexis. And just, I could go on with women that are in the church who give their attention, give their lives for the sake of the church. That's the kind of woman that Phoebe is. She serves in this official capacity. And then thirdly, here's the last thing we see about her. Look at verse two. It says, at the end, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. This idea helper, it's actually, uh, it would be directly translated something like patron or benefactor. That would be a better idea for the idea of helper. It's, it's sort of like this. This word shows us that she's a businesswoman, that she's probably wealthy, like she's loaded. And when Paul says she's helped me, it means she's personally financed a lot of his ministry uh, efforts. And he's like, I, I got to travel to this place and I've got to go visit this church. And I, there's a new area over here that's never heard the gospel. And she's like, all right, Paul, what's, what's the amount? I'm going to write the check for you. That's the kind of woman that she is. And even on this trip to Rome, she's probably financing her own trip to get to Rome to deliver this letter that we all are benefiting from. She's, she's a benefactor to us as well today. And in this, Paul enlists the church in verse two to help her in anything she needs. He, he, she sa he says, hey, whatever she needs to do, help her to get that done. Verse three through five, it says this, the great Priscilla and, or excuse me, <laughs> greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia in Christ. You see, the, the, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila are the original power couple. You ever heard that phrase? Power couple? You know, it's like you just see these two people and it's like, man, they're just, they're just killing it on all levels. This isn't really very normal. You know, usually it's one or the other. You know, there's this one that's sort of, they just, they don't really want to do the thing. They don't really want to push forward. Uh, they just, you know, I'm just happy to kind of kick back. Uh, or the other. And, and yet sometimes God brings a couple together and they're both just driven and going for it and they're all in and they're just making stuff happen. They're, they're, they're uh, this power couple. Now, they are accredited with being fellow workers to Paul. And actually, he says... They risked their lives for my sake. Now, we don't know where that is in Scripture when we look through the book of Acts and whatever. We don't have a certain account that we can look to and say, here's where that happened. Uh, but they, they definitely were willing to go into the thick of things with Paul and say, man, I am willing to jump into this to risk my life. And these two people play a huge role in many churches. It even says it there in uh, verse 4 at the end, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Every church Paul planted knew about these people. 
And they had been a blessing to all of those churches. Now, this couple is named six times in the New Testament. Six different times. Every single time that they're mentioned, they're always mentioned together. They're never mentioned individually. They're always mentioned together. Three times, he's mentioned first. And three times, she's mentioned first. I just love that about this couple. They're just this amazing couple that serves Jesus, is a blessing and benefit to everybody around them. And uh, they have equal value, equal calling, equal passion, but they're different people with different gifts. And so God uses them both for his glory and the good of others in this tremendous way. This couple originally lived in Rome. Uh, That's where they were from as you kind of piece together the six places that they're mentioned in scripture. They originally lived in Rome, but the Roman emperor kicked out all the Jews from Rome and said, you guys can't be here. So they landed in Corinth and uh, because uh, Aquila was a tent maker, he started a tent making business. And then one day Paul rolls through town and his trade was tent making. And so he gets a job with Aquila and they start making tents together. Well, you know what happens as Paul's hanging around? They get saved. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla get saved. They give their lives to Jesus. They understand the, the gospel message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They place their faith in, in that message, and they get saved. And then as Paul leaves from, um, from Corinth after some time, they say, you know what? We want to go with you. So they travel with Paul. They end up in Ephesus. And, and when they get to Ephesus, Paul leaves Timothy there to pastor the church, but he also leaves Priscilla and Aquila there to help Timothy, that this church needed a lot of maturity and mature believers. And so they're there to help the church in Ephesus to grow and mature and succeed. And so Paul continues on. And then there's this guy named Apollos that shows up, this powerful uh, uh, preacher and teacher. This, you know, one of those people that's just a great orator. It's like they put words together in this really tremendous way. And you're like, man, how do you do that? How do you string all of that together? He's one of those kind of guys, but he didn't know the fullness of the gospel. So Aquila and Priscilla, they come alongside him and they say, hey, let's, let's explain the fullness of the gospel to you. He places his faith in Jesus and he starts preaching the gospel all over the place as this powerful, powerful preacher. Well, eventually they, uh, they disciple Apollos and then they end up going back to Rome. And we see here that they actually have a church in their house in Rome. Uh, They hosted a church in their house in in Ephesus, and now they're in Rome hosting a church there in their house again. You see, the church met in houses. Do you you see it there? Uh, The church uh, that meets in their house in verse 5. The church in their house. You see, the church used to meet in homes in early Christianity. And there's like this new thing uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so where like people are going, we just want to get back to the book of Acts and we just want to have house church because that's more spiritual. That's more holy. Do you know why they met in houses? Because they had to. That's They couldn't own property. There was no way. For about 200 years, the church met exclusively in homes, not out of, not out of preference, but out of necessity. Now, is it wrong for a church to meet in a house? No. Is it wrong for a church to meet that we are, the way we are? No. Is one more holy than the other? No, right? Like this church literally started in my home. It wasn't less a church when it was in my living room than it is now. It's just different. It's just in a different place. And you know, you know why we left my house? There wasn't enough room, right? If you guys all came over to my house right now, you'd be like, dude, I'm not coming back. You just, there's nowhere to sit. Uh, the kids are yelling and throwing stuff and, you know, I can't, I can't figure it out. So, you know, the, the reason why is because of just necessity. And so there's nothing more spiritual. Size doesn't make something more or less spiritual. That's, that's not the, the governing factor of what's a good church or not. David Guzik says it like this. You can have a large church congregation in the flesh just as much as you can have a small church congregation in the flesh. What matters is believers being right with God. Believers being fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. That's what makes a church what it is. It's not hearing an inspirational talk. It's not being emotionally stirred. It's not that you, you know, somehow go to this place because that's where you've gone for decades and decades and generations. And my mom's, you know, mom's mom's mom went here so back, back then, whatever. That's not why you go to church. That it's the Lord moving among his people. It's being surrendered to Jesus Christ. That's the point of the church. And when that happens, 
then our relationships work correctly. Notice at the end of verse five, all the way down through verse 16, we have a list of people that continues on. Uh, this guy, Epinetus, uh, is the first fruits of Achaia in Christ. And then verse six, greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. And ampl greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household or of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet, the house, uh, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now, before you're too impressed... Just realize, you have no idea if I said any of those right. <laughs> if you just say it like you know what you're saying, then people go with it, you know. Um, the, the thing is that there's this huge list, list of people, and the vast majority of these people we know nothing about. There are some things in history that we can kind of piece together uh, and, and try to figure out what's going on with this, but they're mostly co could-be conjecture kind of things. We just have a, an honorable mention here. There's some notable things about this list. There are nine women who are named. Remember Phoebe being among those. I think this is tremendous. I love the fact that there are nine women named. There's Mary, uh, and then uh, notice uh, also, uh, let me see if I can find it here. There's uh, these, these twins, Tryphena and Tryphosa. That's how I see them in my head anyway. You know, it's typically, I don't know, like how you name your kids. It seems like a, a thing that you would do uh, if, those, if those were your girls. Um, and then, um, you know, there's, there's uh, the, just women who are given over to seeking the Lord together. And I just think it's tremendous that, that this happens because here's the truth. There are people who want to condemn the Bible as some sort of misogynistic, man-centered kind of a thing. It's just absolutely not true. It's, it's completely crazy to think that the Bible is against women. To, to think that Christianity is against women. Wherever Christianity goes, women are elevated. Women are given their right place of equality among uh, people in, uh, in a culture and in a society. The, the Bible doesn't degrade women at all. The, Jesus doesn't look down upon women at all. He, in fact, lifts them to their right place. Wherever the Bible, wherever the Bible and Christianity is kept out, women are abused Women are destroyed. Women are seen as an object, as a possession. They are, they are completely um, uh, enslaved in those kinds of societies. And so the Lord lifts women in this tremendous way. And then there's this guy in verse 5, Epinetus, the first guy who gets saved in Paul's ministry. And he's in Rome. And Paul's like, hey, that guy, man, he marks a new era in my life. I preached the gospel to these Gentiles and this guy heard it and got saved and that just lit this fire in me and that's what I've been doing with the rest of my life. And then you also have, look at verse uh, 13. This guy, Rufus. Beyond that being your dog's name, or maybe you, you know, you're going to have a son, and you're like, I'm looking for a name, and I think this is going to be a good one. Uh, there's this guy, Rufus, here. Now, this one is probably, it's most likely uh, um, a certain guy out of Mark chapter 15. Now, the reason why this matters is because there's no reason for uh, Mark chapter 15 to mention somebody named Rufus unless there's some sort of value to his name, and it seems as though this is it, that he ended up in Rome. Now, here, what, here's what's, what the deal is uh, with Rufus. There's this guy, Simon the Cyrene, who's walking along the road when Jesus was crucified. Remember, Jesus collapses under his cross, and then the Roman guard compels a man to carry Jesus' cross for him. It was Simon. And we're told there in, in Mark chapter 15 that he's got two sons, and one of them's named Rufus. And then we see him here, there. Now, this is, you know, again, conjecture. We don't know. It could be somebody else, but it seems like it fits that way. And there are the workers among this list are specifically 
noted. There's two big principles that I want to pull out for us as we look at this together, as we consider this section with all these names, all these different people. Uh, 29 different people are mentioned individually in this piece. There's two principles that I want to pull out. Number one, theology is for everyone. Theology is for everyone. Men and women are named. Rich and poor are named. There's some in here that could be slaves because it was a common slave name. There are some who could be nobles in this, like the Herodians family and Aristobulus. Uh, there are some, some that look as though they're nobles. Theology is for everyone. That I don't care how well-educated you are or how you know, uneducated you think you are or whatever. Theology is for you. Studying the Bible's for you. And what I hope that happens is that as we study the Bible the, the way that we do here at Redemption Calvary, that as we travel through the scriptures, that you feel confident in knowing them. That, that you are growing in your knowledge and the grace of, of Jesus and that, that you feel more confident to open the Bible and to read it and to, to say, I can understand this. I can get this. It's not written in some sort of cryptic code that you have to decode and, and, and know some special uh, tools in order to, to figure it out. No, it's written for you. It's something that we all are, it has, it's for all of us. And secondly, not only is theology for everyone, but Paul had a team. I mean, if there's anybody that I could think of that's like the, the MVP of Christianity, it's Paul the Apostle, right? If there's somebody I'm going to put on the court, somebody I'm going to put in the ball in their hands, it's going to be Paul. And, and yet, Paul wasn't a one-man show. He's got a team of people. He's got a lot of people that are surrounding him. All right, not only are we, do we see this first section, family in Christ, but there's also enemies of Christ in verses 17 through verse 20. Notice it says this. Um, oh, also, just, uh, just as a side note before we move on, in verse 16 it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not going to implement that, just so you know. Like, we're not, it's not a thing we're going to do. Actually, when I was in uh, Indonesia, I got to teach at a Bible college there, teaching some pastors because they'd never heard Bible teaching like this. I taught through Romans, and when we got to this part, uh, one of the questions they asked was, hey, there's a traveling kind of preacher that goes around, and he uses this verse to make out with, with all the women of the church. What should we do? I said, tell me his name, because I want to make sure he gets a kiss from my fist. Uh, like, you're using the Bible to take advantage of people? Like, making out with the women? All right. So we're... It's like handshake or a hug or so, like greet, greet each other, right? They, they would commonly kiss each other on the cheeks. And, you know, if you're Italian, maybe you do the same thing. Uh, and so that's kind of a, one of those kinds of things. All right, secondly, family in Christ. And then secondly, enemies of Christ, verse 17. 17 says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Not everyone who sought to come into the church was a blessing and a benefit. Some are dividers and deceivers. That's just the way that it goes. It may even be true among us this morning. And there's a real danger of that to the church. And these dividers and deceivers, they attack the two things that are vitally important in the church. That's why we see these two words being used for them. They divide, verse 17, divisions. And verse 18, uh, by flattering speech, they deceive. What they're doing by dividing is they bring division where we need unity. The, the dividers come in and they say, hey, you know what? Don't follow what the church is doing. Do what I'm doing. Come do my thing. Come away with me. They're, these people, I know, yeah, oh, they're, they're trying really hard, but you, know, you need to come do my thing. Dividers, that's what they do. They bring division where we need unity and they deceive where we need truth. They bring in the wrong thoughts. They bring in the wrong things. And it's with smooth, flattering speech. It sounds like it could be good. Sounds like it might be right. But it's actually a lie. We need unity and we need truth. Because truth without unity, we need both of these. Truth without unity is brutality. That's what you get. If it's all truth and there's no unity, there's no love, it's just this is the truth, then you'll brutally attack people. You'll brutalize people. But if you flip that, if you're all unity with no truth, hey, we just need to love everybody. We just need to accept everybody. Everything goes. Everything's all good. Whatever you want, you just, as you feel it, you just do it. But we're not going to hold anything that's truth because truth is relative. It's sort of this thing that you can kind of make up. And, you know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And there's no such thing as really a standard of truth. And we're just going to play pretend in life 
When you get that, you get hypocrisy. You get hypocrisy. Because there really is truth. You're just pretending like it doesn't exist. These ideas, truth and unity, they, they work like, you ever take your kids bowling? You ever do that? You know what the first thing you do is when you take your kids to the bowling alley? You put them bumpers up because they're going to throw it right in the gutter and then they're going to be like, bowling's dumb. I don't want to do this. You know, you're like, I just wasted $9,000. Um, and so you put the bumpers up, right? And then they throw it down and then it bounces back and forth and then they get to the end and some pins fall over. You're like, you did it. You know, you didn't do it. It's the bumpers. Truth and unity are the bumpers, Right? As we start to go too far one way, truth says nope. As we go too far the other way, unity says nope. Stay in the middle. Stay in the lane. Verse 18, a right relationship with God allows you to clearly see those who have no relationship with God. You see, it says those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve themselves, their own belly, their own appetites. They're looking to take not to give. They're not saved. They're just coming in, pretending to be Christians, saying the right words, going through the right motions, doing all the right stuff, and yet they're not really serving the Lord. And when you have a right, right relationship with God, it allows you to clearly see those who don't have a relationship with him, and you see them correctly as dangerous predators, not as people that you just go, hey, come on. It's like, you know, if you, you find a dog on the side of the road and it's foaming out of its mouth and its hair on the back of its neck is all standing up, you don't go, oh, look, a puppy for my kids. You know, that's not what you do. You leave that thing alone. You keep it away from your family. You don't bring it in and let it play with your baby. Um, <laughs> shepherds and wolves have a very different relationship with sheep, don't they? Very different relationship with sheep. Shepherds care for sheep. Wolves eat them. Notice it says that they serve their belly. They're looking to devour people for themselves. They're filling themselves. They're serving themselves. It's like this. If someone wants to come in and uh, try to divide and deceive one of my girls, maybe it's a boy and they're enamored with this boy, or maybe it's one of their friends. You know, the, 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 they have these friends and... You know, I don't know if your kids have had these friends where you're like, you're not going to have that friend anymore. And you're like, how do I do this? And so their friend says, hey, we'd like to, uh, we'd like to have you come over to our house. Like, oh, you know what? We have a family trip that we planned today. And, and Mike is like, what's our family trip? I don't know, but we have one now. We're going somewhere, you know, because you've got to keep your kids away from that kind of a friend or even a teacher who's just trying to shove foolish ideology down your teacher's throat. You know what you do as a dad, what I do with those kind of people? I don't say, here, devour my children. It's so great that you're around. I'd love for you to just divide and deceive my children away from me. No, I remove them with extreme prejudice right now, right away. No more access. You are done. You're not going to have access to that. Why? Not because I'm a control freak, but because I love my kids. I love my kids enough to say, this is dangerous. It's out. And I'll do whatever it takes to make sure I care for my family that way, which is one of the reasons why we homeschool. Um, so in this, verse 17, notice it says there, there are two things to be done. It says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctor and avoid them. Two things are to be done with these kind of people. You note them, you mark them, you see them, you, you say that you, you label them. This is a divider and a deceiver. We need to know what's happening. We can't just let ourselves be fooled or just go, you know what, That's, it's mean. It's mean. To, why would you call them such names? Why would you say you're a divider? Because they are. And when you're not willing to do that, you foolishly live in this utopian concept that there's not bad people. You know, who's a, you know we're, we're all bad people. Do you know that? We're all bad people. We all do bad things. We're all sinful. We're all prone to wander. We're prone toward things that are wrong. And so you've got to note those who are going to be those dividers and deceivers. And then you've got to also avoid them. Now, what that doesn't mean is just sit on the other side of the room. That's not what it means by avoid. They're over there. I'm going to sit over here. Avoid them literally means to shun them. That you cut them out of relationship. It's that you actually say, you are not welcome here. You need to go somewhere else. That, that's what you do here. Man, that sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? Sounds like pretty, man, the church just needs to be more loving, more inclusive. Not with these kind of people. No, because it's, it's like bring, bringing a rabid dog to your, home to your kids. You don't let them hang around. You make them leave because a shepherd is given a staff 
and a rod, right? Psalm 23, your rod and staff, they comfort me. You know what the staff is used for? That long thing with the hook on it? It's used to gently guide the sheep. Or if the sheep, because sheep are dumb. I don't know if you knew this about sheep. When the Bible says we're like sheep, it's totally true. We are dumb. Um, and so the, we're, just, just, watch, just watch the news. We're, as a culture, we're just not smart. So sheep will fall into places and get stuck, right? And it's got that hook thing and you can like grab it and pull it back out and that kind of stuff. Now, there's also the, the, the uh, rod. So it's got a staff, that's what a shepherd does. The shepherd's also got a rod. The rod comforts, it's like a short bat is what that is. The rod is comforting, why? Because the shepherd don't use it on the sheep, right? I don't know if you've ever thought that's a weird, like why does the rod comfort me? That, is, that feels discomfort is what that sounds like to me. No, it's because the, the shepherd uses it on the wolves. When the wolf comes to try to take the sheep, you beat that wolf and you make it leave. That's what, that's what the, a good shepherd does. And so, there's this issue that's brought up and he says you need to mark them and you need to cut them out. Um, David Guzik says it like this. Most often, friends, those who are dividers and deceivers, they often perceive themselves to have the best of intentions. They never want to appear selfish. They look at themselves as noble crusaders for a great cause. Most people who are dividers and deceivers, they don't come in and they, they, they have a meeting with me. Hey, pastor, I would just like to divide and deceive the church as quickly as possible. Where do I start? They don't do that. They come in and they think that they just have their thing and they're just such a great person and they're like, why, don't, why won't you do my thing? Why won't, you why won't you get behind my stuff? Why won't you just do the thing that I wanna do? And they constantly are driving their thing. Those are typically dividers and deceivers. Sometimes it's just people that are just passionate about something and that's great. There's, there, that doesn't mean everyone who's got that kind of an attitude is a divider and deceiver, but when they won't do what we are doing or they just do it in order to get with people to divide them away from the flock and divide them unto themselves, those are dividers and deceivers. Those are wolves, not shepherds. Uh, all right. A contrast to the false believers is found in verses 19 and 20. It says this, For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be simple in what is good, uh, excuse me, wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You see, there's a contrast to the false believers, and it's the genuine faith of the church of Rome, the Roman Christians. Their genuine faith has a powerful, eternal impact on the world. In verse 19, he says this, that your obedience has become known to all, therefore I'm glad on your behalf. But I want to warn you. So there's this warning that's given. I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. He says, basically he's saying this, don't adopt the tactics of the dividers and deceivers because it might work for them. Dividers and deceivers sometimes sneak in and they're able to get stuff done and they're able to steal away part of the, the flock of God. Because that works, some people go, you know what, we just need to, we need to kind of maybe do some of that stuff and that'll help us to be able to, to grow our church. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go to the church down the street. We're gonna put a sign in their parking lot that says our church is over here and you should come down and meet in our church. What? Uh, what? No, that's being a divider, right? That's being a deceiver. We're, that is not what you do. Maybe it sounds like a good idea from a worldly perspective, but it is not honoring to the Lord. And so we don't adopt the tactics of the dividers and the deceivers. But also, uh, the reason why we don't do that is because verse 20, they're actually satanic. The, the divisiveness, the deception, it's not from them. It's backed by satanic Force, satanic opposition. You see, they're not innocent. They're not just going through the motions of being an, an innocent person and just kind of an innocent bystander. They're just trying to be nice and then, oh, you labeled me as a bad person. No, you're being influenced by Satan. And even Satan's not gonna get away with any of his division and deception. See there, it says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your, your feet. James 3, 14 through 15 says it like this. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not uh, God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual. Look, demonic. Demonic. James actually says there's a kind of what is worldly, so-called wisdom 
that's actually demonic. It's not just, you know, well, that was their, their idea. It's actually demonic kind of wisdom. That demonic wisdom is what much of our world functions under. A lot of the tactics of our world function under this kind of demonic wisdom. It's a pretty scary concept to consider. Now, notice there as well in verse 20, this final thought that God is the one who crushes Satan. It's not your awesomeness. I, I was uh, part of a church when, early on in my Christianity where they would quote this phrase a lot, that God's gonna crush Satan under your feet and then they would dance around and stomp on stuff and it was like you were crushing Satan. But it's not your awesomeness that crushes Satan. It's God who crushes Satan under your feet. You, it's not you that does this thing. And so working ourselves up into an emotional frenzy isn't gonna make this happen. It's something that God does. It's what he accomplishes on our behalf. Thirdly and finally, not only family in Christ and enemies of Christ, but also servants to Christ, verses 21 through 27. 21, verse 21 says this, Timothy, my fellow worker and Lucius, Jason, Sospiter, my countrymen greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the, uh, the whole church greets you. Uh, Erastus, the treasurer of the city greets you, and Cordus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is like the eighth time he's ended the letter, uh, but we're still continuing. There's still more verses. Now, here in verses 21 through 24, there are eight more names that are added to the list of 27 to get us up to 37 people. Now, these are more than just laborers. These are more than just workers. These are dear friends to Paul. Paul is a, not only a great theologian, but he's also a great friend maker. He's a great friend. He just invests his life into other people. And this is the way that God has designed ministry to work, that his laborers are to be friends. If it's just a job, then you just wake up dread. Why do I got to get up so early and go to that church and stand around and I got to put out a thing and I got to make some stuff. And, you know, if it's that, then it's just like, you know, when your alarm goes off to go to work. But when you're friends and you're doing this as a, a community of believers, you, I can't wait to show up. I can't wait to get here. I can't wait to be around my friends and to serve the Lord together. You see, it what moves the church beyond a place that you just go to. If the church is just a place that you go to, then nothing's gonna happen in your life. It's just gonna be this religious routine. But when relationship is the purpose, when relationship with God and relationship with other people, man, God will transform your life in tremendous ways. So let me ask you this question. Are your friends here? Why not if they're not? Why, why are they not here? It's probably either one, that you're not making effort, or two, your attention is somewhere else. You have friends somewhere else. So I just want to encourage you. Your friends, your best friends, they should be here. They should be within the church. And we need to be given to this kind of ministry, to love and serve one another that kind of a way. So, so here's this, who are you having lunch with? Who are you inviting over to your home and, and hanging out with and playing games with or, or whatever you want to do? Who are you going on that day trip with? Hey, we're going to go and do this hike. You guys want to come with us? Or who are you going out to shoot that new gun with? Because you did buy a new gun, right? You should have. <laughs> if not, you should go get one now. Who are you going to go test fire it with? And, you know, what are you doing with people within the church? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says it like this. Two people are better than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. You need friends. You need other godly people in your life in such a way that they can encourage you and hold you accountable and spur you on in the things of the Lord. Too many people complain about not being connected. I'm just not connected. I just, I just don't have many friends there. There's not enough people like me or whatever. And really what you're saying is that, you know, those people, they're just, I, I tried going to life group, but I just didn't really connect. What you're saying is those people aren't made enough in my image for me to love them. Duh. Does that one hurt or what? That one, man, when I heard, uh, there was another pastor in Arizona that I, I stole that from. Uh, when I heard him say that, Man, that just, that just cut me to the heart. Like, man, that is such a terrible attitude. And it's the attitude we tend to have, isn't it? They're not made enough in my image for me to love them. Well, whose image are they made in? We're, we're made in the image of Jesus, in the image of God. What, what else is there for me to do but love them? 
not look down on them because they're not like me. And so if, if you're complaining about not being connected, then make the effort. Make the effort. You go first. If you want to have friends, try this. Be friendly. That's pro tip right there for you. Be friendly. Reach out. Go first. Invite people over. Go do things with them. Um, also try this. Don't give off, give off the I hate people vibe. You know, if you sit there with a scowl on your face all the time and you stare straight ahead and you never look at people, people are going to think, that's a jerk. I don't want to talk to them. You know, like, don't do that. Actually go and look at people and ask them about their lives and talk to them. Now, notice there in uh, verse 21, this first guy, Timothy, my fellow worker, he's shown there. He's one of Paul's most trusted friends. He's always showing up with, uh, with Paul. Paul actually says of Timothy, there's nobody else who's as like-minded as you are with me. Uh, and then we also have Tertius. Uh, he didn't, he's not like, he's, he, this isn't Paul's other name. This is a scribe. Uh, he's a guy that Paul is dictating to. So I don't know if you had this really, you know, I don't know, uh, nostalgic or overly romanticized view of how Romans was written that Paul is in this dark room with a quill and it's like by candlelight and he's scratching out on this, you know, papyrus or whatever. No, he actually, he was talking and uh, this guy was writing it for him. That's how it was going. Uh, so maybe I just ruined your idea of, of Paul, but it's Jesus' fault, not mine. He wrote it. All right, so verse 25, it says this as we, as we bring it to a close. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone, uh, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You see, this here, verses 25 through 27, is one of the longest benedictions or the closings that Paul has ever written. It's a summary of the letter of Romans. That Romans is all about this, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Remember that we started off looking at Romans and we called it the gospel according to Paul? That it's, it's, that's what it's all about. Romans is, is known as the Mount Everest of theology and the, it's about one thing. It's about the gospel message. It's about the depths and the glory of the gospel message, all centered around the preaching of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is central to the gospel. There's no such thing as a gospel without Jesus. There's no such thing as good news apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the greatest news there ever could be. And so Paul, his goal is clearly laid out there in verse 25. It says, uh, now to him who is able to establish you. That his goal in writing Romans is to establish you in the faith. That that's the point that he wants to do. And central to that is preaching Jesus. And this is the mission and hope of not only Paul, but it's the mission and hope of our church, of Redemption Calvary. That we want to be the, uh, a church that grows healthy believers in Jesus. We aim for biblical literacy that produces biblical obedience. That's what we're all about here at Redemption Calvary. Because the supernaturally natural result is that the more established you are in the gospel the more readily available it is to you in your daily life and to be able to share it with other people. Being established in God's word and being established in the gospel functions as it flows out of your life for the sake of God's glory and the good of others around you. That you're able to carry the gospel message with confidence. Why? Because you know it and you know it well through the establishment of God's word. Warren Wearsby says it like this in his commentary, be right. Christians are established by truth, which explains why Paul wrote this letter to explain God's plan of salvation to the Christians so they would be established and so they would share the truth with the lost. After all, we cannot really share with others something that we do not have ourselves. Notice he says there in verse 25, he says, the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. This word mystery, and then he tells us, but now, verse 26, is made manifest. The idea of a mystery is something that's hidden, and you can't find it unless someone shows it to you. It's kind of like if I was to take my Bible and I hide it behind my back, and I say, my Bible is a mystery. Right? That's the idea of the word mystery. Now, it doesn't mean that it's gone. It just means that you can't see it. And then when I do this, 
It's no longer a mystery, right? I've shown it to you. I've made it available to you. I've revealed it to you. I've made it manifest to you. It doesn't make it cease being a mystery. It means that it's changed to where the mystery is now manifested. The mystery is now revealed. It's not mystery like Scooby-Doo. You know, it's like they're trying to figure out who did it and they're trying to figure it out and then they put all the pieces together and they go, oh, I get it. That's not the mystery of the Bible. The mystery is God has it hidden on purpose to reveal it at the right time. You know what the mystery is? Jesus dies, is buried, and raises again, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And when he brings all the world together into this new thing called the church, his new family, that's the mystery. The mystery is that was always God's plan. The mystery is that even though the Old Testament's all about the Jews and the the New Testament is written pretty much all by Jews to Jews uh, and Revelation is all about the Jews, that God is also interested in the whole world. And he makes this new thing called the church. That's the great mystery. You see, God's, God is, as we close here, everlasting. See that in verse 26? And then look at the end of verse 27. Uh, the glory is forever. The truth is that you being made in God's image are eternal, just like God is. It's part of being made in God's image is that you bear eternity on your heart, on your soul. And you're going to live forever. And internally, you just know it's true. That's why every time somebody dies, it feels wrong. I don't care how old they are. I don't care how well, how well of a life they lived. I don't care how amazing their life was. It always feels wrong. Why? Because you weren't made to just expire. You were made for eternity. And you will live for eternity. The, the question is, where will you be? And Jesus says there's only two options. Matthew 13, 41 through 43, Jesus says this, the son of man will send his angels and they will remove his, uh, from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Jesus very clearly says there are only two options. There are only two options. It's heaven or it's hell. It's paradise and eternity with God or it's eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the only only two choices. How do you know which one you're destined for? How do you know where you are going? How do you know where you will end up? Well, the answer to this question, it's intimately tied in, in the idea of relationship. Relationship is the whole key. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this, not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we performed many miracles in your name. But listen to Jesus' reply, but I will reply, I never knew you. I never knew you, relationship. And he says, get away from me, you who break God's laws. Relationship is the key. Knowing Jesus, being known by him, that relationship is everything. And when you, when you surrender your life to the gospel message, that Jesus' death was for me, not just this general thing, not just this religious concept, but Jesus, his blood paid for my sin, you, and you ask him for forgiveness, you enter into this relationship where it's all restored. And he brings everything back together. According to Jesus, your relationship with him or your lack of it is the dividing line between good and evil. It's the dividing line between heaven and hell. Not your religious activity, not your humanitarian work, not your, your supernatural experiences. None of those can make up for lack of relationship. It's all about relationship with Jesus. So you're in one of three groups this morning. Either you're in a group where you need to come to Jesus you need, to, you need to actually surrender your life to Jesus and say, you know what, I've never done this. I've, maybe I've heard this. Maybe my parents took me to church and I've heard about this stuff before, but I've never actually surrendered my life to Jesus and I've recognized his death was for me. And if that's you, then right now is the right time. You can even from the quietness of your seat right now just surrender to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sin and he will. Or maybe you've done that before and you need to come back to Jesus this is a come to Jesus moment, right? Come back to Jesus. 
that it's time I've walked away for too long. I've been about my thing for too long. I've just I've pursued my life, my way. I've done my stuff, and now you know what? It's time. It's over. It's it's time for me to stop living like that. Jesus, I I need you to be back in control. Maybe that maybe that's not you. Maybe neither of those are you. Maybe for you it's time to get busy for Jesus. What has He made you for? Why do you still draw breath? It's not just to exist. He has something for you to do, something that he wants to use you for. It's time to get busy for him. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to study it, and we pray that you would help us to draw near to you and that you would be glorified. God, thank you that we can uh, honor you. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you for a relationship with you. And we pray that you would show us where we can uh, draw near to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.